Hi, I'm Douglas Haynes, your Monday host of A Public Affair. We love creating this public space for in-depth conversations about education, ecology, food, and so much more. To keep these conversations going, we need your support. Go to wortfm.org slash donate. Thank you. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound. Welcome to a public affair. I'm your Monday host, Douglas Haynes. Today we're going to talk about the global biodiversity crisis and the current United Nations Conference of the Parties of the Convention on Biological Diversity, or COP15 where, I'm quoting here, the fate of the entire living world will be determined, according to scientists warning this week in the journal Science Advances. This fall, the World Wildlife Fund published its Living Planet Report 2022, a comprehensive study of global biodiversity, which reveals that wildlife populations have declined by an average of 69% since 1970. To prevent more animal disappearances... Leaders from around the world are meeting this week in Montreal, Canada. In his opening remarks at the COP15 conference, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres said, This conference is our chance to stop this orgy of destruction. We need nothing less from this meeting than a bold post-2020 global biodiversity framework. So we're going to talk today about what this framework might look like, what global leaders and all of us need to do to prevent mass extinction. And here to tell us more about both the need for this framework and what they know about how to make it happen, we have two guests. First of all, we have Dr. Marla Emery, who is co-chair of Scientific Assessment of Sustainable Use of Wild Species under the Intergovernmental Science Policy Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services. Marla is also a scientific advisor at the Norwegian Institute for Nature Research. Welcome to A Public Affair, Marla. Hi, Doug. So great to be here. We also have with us today Jadine Sonoda, campaign coordinator for the Wisconsin chapter of the Sierra Club. She helped organize a coalition of activists to draw attention to the threats Enbridge's fossil fuel pipelines pose to biodiversity at the COP15 conference. Thank you very much for joining us, Jadine. Thanks for having me here. And welcome, listeners. We'd really love for you to join our conversation today. If you'd like to share a question or a perspective about the biodiversity crisis, please give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. You can also tweet us at WORT Talk or message a public affair on Facebook. We'll start with you today, Marla for the lay of the land, so to speak, uh, because you've been studying this issue for a long time and you were recently part of a four-year study called the Global Assessment Report on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services. Tell us about the key messages about what's happening to the non-human world in this recent report. Well, the key messages about the origins of the threat are climate change, habitat destruction, overuse, and pollution. That is the discouraging key message. The encouraging key messages are, we can do something about this. 
And in fact, we know what we can do about it. Um, just all too often, we don't. However, there are examples around the world within the context of the things that uh, you know, are larger than those of us acting at local levels, such as climate change. Um, there are, there's clear evidence around the world of people taking action to steward biodiversity. Uh, and that includes people using biodiversity sustainably. So this doesn't mean a completely hands-off approach. Uh, human beings wouldn't exist if for long if we took a completely hands-off approach. But for example, in particular, indigenous peoples and local communities offer us examples that are millennia old of ways that we can live in harmony with nature. Uh, and also examples of times when, for example, our uses of fish, of fish, for example, maybe, were sustainable, then they became unsustainable, and then they've become sustainable again. So there's absolutely reason for hope. But as Secretary General of the United Nations Guterres said, uh, it requires uh, urgent and really transformative action in order for us to realize this possibility. If you were to to answer a, a cynic, um, Marla, who would say, well, you know, so some species are disappearing. Uh, why does that matter to human beings? Why should humans care about the extinction of our fellow creatures here on planet Earth? Because we are not an alien species on this planet. We are citizens of that nature. And when one species disappears, it has ripple effects throughout the network of life that we are a part of. Um, Secretary General Guterres also said in his introductory remarks at the Convention on Biodiversity, there is no planet B. If we screw this one up, we go along with it. You're listening to A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM. My name is Douglas Haynes, and today I'm talking with Dr. Marla Emery and Jadine Sonoda of the Sierra Club about the biodiversity crisis and the COP15 Biodiversity Conference in Montreal happening last week and this week. If you'd like to join the conversation, please give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension Nine. Jadine, I'd like to bring you into the conversation now. Um, you've been working very specifically with the Sierra Club and other organizations uh, to call attention to the impacts of fossil fuel extraction on biodiversity and pipelines in particular. Um, tell us about some of the impacts of fossil fuel extraction and pipelines on biodiversity among uh, those causes that uh, Dr. Emery was talking about a few minutes ago. Yeah, sure. That's such a perfect transition. I was taking my notes as Marla was talking. Um, it's really great to be here with you. Um, so yeah, the the big pipeline that I'm working on right now is called Line 5. Um, it runs across the northern part of Wisconsin up into Michigan um, and ends when it enters uh, Canada um, near Sarnia. And um, 
oil and tar sands pipelines are a major threat to climate change. Their combustion are, cre are creating greenhouse gases, which of course um, is a major contributor. And like Marla was saying, um, as climate change progresses, we're seeing really serious impacts to biodiversity. So for, for one, um, Line 5 is having a major impact there, but then there's some really major risks with both habitat destruction and pollution as well. Um, so Line 5, along with many of uh, the other pipelines in this region, um, has um, it runs through uh, water bodies and um, the Great Lakes region. So if there were to be a spill, um, there would be some really, really serious consequences to the ecosystems in many different areas. Um, and would impact many, many different species and um, us humans as well. Um, if there were a spill, for example, um, like near Lake Superior, that oil would spread throughout the Great Lakes through the St. Lawrence Seaway and just have really devastating impacts and consequences um, for uh, species and habitats throughout the entire region. So something that we're really, really concerned about, and um, that's why we're working to try and stop Line 5 and get it shut down to protect um, the water, protect many of the species in the area, and for us and our own health um, and well-being as well. We're going to continue to try to marry uh, activism and science and policy in this conversation. And uh, Jadine, um, we may as well follow up with you, first of all, uh, on the Line 5 issue as part of this larger conversation about threats to biodiversity happening at the COP15 conference in Montreal right now. Um, you're representing uh, the perspectives of people working on the streets primarily at, at COP15. Tell us about what you've been organizing there, and then we'll move to Marla Emery in a minute to hear about what's happening inside the halls of the conference. But Jadine, first of all, tell us about what's been happening on the streets related to pipelines. Yeah, definitely. So um, I've just been one person amongst many, many different organizers who have been working to um, use this conference as a really, really wonderful opportunity to be like raising our voices and making noise about things that are really, really crucial and important. Um, and so a couple of the things that I've been working on are, are trying to get folks from the Great Lakes region up into Montreal to participate in some of these things like marches um, or teach-in to learn, in my case, particularly about Line 5 and the impact that it would have on this whole region, like I was saying previously. So um, this past Saturday, there was a big march that happened where Folks were coming out from all over and just raising their voices, um, calling for change and the need to protect biodiversity um, and really implement um, all of these goals at every different level from like super local, state or regional level, national level and so on. Um, I think I, I was trying to follow things from afar um, since I wasn't able to be there, but I think that there are something like 3,500 people who were there and I know that there um, are lots of ongoing um, activities throughout last week and this week of uh, folks who are taking advantage of this opportunity to, you know, try and do education, try and get some more coverage of what's happening and what different communities are dealing with firsthand. Um, and so I was really lucky to be able to help some folks from this area join in on that um, march and rally and a teach-in. Um, and I think this is particularly important because um, 
Line 5, as I was saying, it impacts the whole region, but because of colonial boundaries like state lines or the, the border between um, the U.S. and Canada, a lot of organizing and activism ends up getting divided when it really shouldn't be because, you know, biodiversity, nature, all of that doesn't know boundaries the way that um, we see them today, um, I guess in legal international terms, <laughs> state lines and all that. Um, and so... This has been a really, really cool opportunity to show people that we all need to be working together and that Line 5 is something that is connecting us all um, and the need to be protecting water and species and communities um, across the whole region. So, yeah, great opportunity for folks to be coming together and, and lifting up those concerns, like you were saying, on the streets and, and in Montreal. Thank you for making those connections, Jadine. Could you take just uh, one more moment to tell us about some of your collaborators, uh, some of the other people that are joining with the Sierra Club to uh, raise this issue at COP15 in Montreal? Yeah, so there are um, a lot of folks that I work with here in Wisconsin and in the Great Lakes region. So um, different tribal folks and lots of different organizations. Um, Sierra Club has a, a great network of chapters across the whole area. So we've been working closely with Minnesota and Michigan and Illinois um, and then folks in Canada. I think that um, one of the big organizers of this rally was Greenpeace. Um, I know Environmental Defense Canada has been really involved and they've been so great. Um, in helping just like all of us make connections. And that's part of what we're hoping to do in being on the ground there is, you know, make connections with people that we haven't talked to before um, and build out like a, a much wider coalition of groups who are interested in this. Um, I also want to call up, we can, the Women's Earth and Climate Action Network, um, who have been really, really wonderful partners and um, we're also part of uh, making this a success. That's Jadine Sonoda. Uh, campaign coordinator from the Sierra Club, Wisconsin chapter, talking about activism at COP15 in Montreal. We'd love to hear your perspectives on the biodiversity crisis and international efforts to address it. Please give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. You can also reach out to us on Twitter or Facebook at Public Affair. I'm going to turn us to the conference more directly now and go back to you, Marla. The aim of the COP15 Biodiversity Summit is to adopt a globally agreed plan, what they're calling the post-2020 Global Biodiversity Framework for Living in Harmony with Nature. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you hope this plan might look like, what you and other scientists you've been collaborating with are advocating for at the conference? First, uh, some clearly agreed and committed targets for conserving areas of natural habitat and actions to reduce the numbers of species facing extinction and the speed with which we have uh, increasing numbers of species uh, facing risks of extinction. So that's redu reductions in numbers of species that actually go extinct and reductions in numbers of species that get close, that begin to approach that process of becoming extinct. And that's plants, animals, and fungi. Uh, so really all the living creatures, uh, all the living 
life on this planet um that the we are they're all interconnected and we can't afford to lose uh the fungi for example which keep forests healthy um but which are um really affected by small changes in temperature and and rainfall and snow for for example uh and all of the animals that then depend upon the plants and the trees that are in the forest. So that's what we're going for. I'd love to have you tell us a little bit more about fungi, actually, um, because we hear so much when we hear about uh, threatened species, about large mammals in particular, maybe butterflies, um, but not so much plants and not so much fungi, especially. And, and you mentioned some issues that are causing problems for fungi. Um, tell us more about fungi specifically, uh, close to home perhaps here in the northern part of North America. Yeah. So um, the forests of Wisconsin and Minnesota and, and Michigan, your listeners may have heard of Michael Reisel fungi. That is their Mushrooms have little roots, you can call them, they're called mycelia, that are under the ground and they are connecting the trees in those forests. And they have a relationship with the trees in those forests so that they help the trees in those forests get nutrients out of the soil that keep the trees healthy. And the trees provide some benefits in turn to the mushrooms through the mycorrhizal fungi. If the fungal community, that is all those little roots, all those mushrooms in, in a forest, begin to die because it's too hot for them, the soil, the soil gets too warm, or they're very dependent upon moisture from rain and from snowfall. Uh, if they begin to experience heat stress, and water stress, just the way that human beings can experience heat stress and water stress, they will be, they will get sick, they will begin to die, and we will see that in the forests. And we will see that in the plants of the forest, the trees of the forest, and all of the animals that depend upon it. And we will see it in the water. We will see it in the rivers. We will see it in the fish in the rivers, you know, your walleye might be in trouble if the fungi get in trouble. So tell us more. Are there specific species of fungi, in fact, that are, are threatened uh, in the U.S. right now? You know, I think that um, this is an area where a great deal of scientific work is needed. We are only beginning to understand what's happening in the, in the soil and so I don't think actually at this point in time that we can name individual species. We can certainly say things like, you know, morel mushroom hunting is, is a, a passionate pastime in Wisconsin. And uh, we might start to see ourselves not being able to find morels anymore. Now, that might be accompanied by an initial lots and lots of morels because morels tend to throw up their mushrooms, the part that we like to eat, when the trees that they're associated with are begin to die. But once they've died, no more morels. 
That's Dr. Marla Emery, scientific advisor to uh, the Norwegian Institute for Nature Research and a co-author of a recent report on biodiversity and the biodiversity crisis. We're talking about the biodiversity crisis and the COP15 conference on biodiversity happening right now in Montreal. We'd love to hear from you here on A Public Affair. Give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. It was really lovely to hear that on-the-ground example and really think about uh, what the daily landscape-level impacts of this larger crisis is uh, here in Wisconsin and, of course, elsewhere. Let's go back to what's happening there in, in Montreal right now. And you were there last week, Marla. Can you tell us about one of, what some of the points of contention are um, and also what you experienced at the conference last week? What's the atmosphere like? Yeah, well, first off, uh, when, there were about 18,000 people inside the conference room. So part of what the atmosphere is like is lots of people who are very excited about this, uh, working hard on it, very committed to it. Uh, in terms of the formal negotiations, among the issues that are um, most hotly contested uh, are, for example, a proposal that's often referred to as 30 by 30. That is a proposal to conserve uh, a percentage of the world's surface. Um, usually that's talking about land, but also uh, in reference to nearshore and deep ocean habitats as well. So to conserve 30% of that by 2030. And that proposal to conserve 30% of the Earth's surface and of habitats in the Earth by 2030 has uh, some very strong supporters. Uh, and it also has some rather equally strong uh, opponents to it. And so that is a very... Uh, intense ongoing negotiation. Uh, and I think part of, at the heart of that is what does it mean to conserve habitat? What does it mean to conserve nature? Does that mean all human beings out and all human activities out? Uh, in practice, that's in fact not really feasible. And so uh, then then, then there have to be negotiations uh, around, well then, what does it mean to conserve land and water? What is it that we'll let people do? And for example, Jadine's been working with tribal folks in Wisconsin and um, talking in particular about where areas that are conserved already and might be added to conserved area how um, does how do the rights and the traditional practices and the traditional sustainable uses of tribal peoples in those conserved areas get guaranteed and protected? Are there other things that we might be willing and to allow because they can uh, other activities because they can 
that can take place without pushing biodiversity toward uh, pushing species toward extinction without mo- without harming habitats to the extent that we're not achieving goals of of uh, of uh, preservation and, and conservation. So that's a that's a really hot hot topic and probably really um, the most contentious topic on the table, but also targets for, as I said earlier, uh, can we reduce the the rate of extinction and the rate with which species are uh, getting to the brink of extinction? That's in the official in the official negotiations, but there are, uh, for me, what was so exciting, um, I mean, that's critically important and that's what governments will commit to and that is the center of what's happening at the COP in Montreal. But what's so exciting is the number of civil society actors, the number of folks like Jadeen, organizations like the Sierra Club, nonprofit organizations that are really committed and are doing work on the ground every single day who are there and they're i think really changing the conversation i came out of a room in which uh, a very important official discussion was going on to find a bunch of people standing inside the convention center with credentials to be there repeatedly saying choose ambition not extinction and so there's this great energy around these very important negotiations. Thank you, Marla. I want to return to some of the big issues you mentioned there in a minute. We have a caller on the line, uh, John, who has a question about the impacts of agriculture. John, welcome to A Public Affair. Yeah, hi. It's great to have you discussing this. I actually was at the uh, Rio Earth Summit back in 92, and a lot of this bio diversity discussion started at the UN level, and um, it's great to have us revisit this now. And I, I was just curious about the, um, the one of the solutions the U.S. has been plugging at these climate change conferences is climate smart agriculture. And unfortunately, you know, I'm a farmer, and one, one of the problems with that is that a lot of uh, big agrochemical companies are pushing, uh, you know, more use of synthetic fertilizers and um, pesticides as, as part of their climate smart agenda, which seems to be I mean, I know it's a huge impact on biodiversity all around the world. I mean, I've been to Isle Royale, and there's toxaphene and DDT coming down the rain. It's in the fish on Isle Royale, which you think would be a pristine, safe environment to be a fish, but apparently not. So I'm just curious what your guests think about how we can um, challenge the use of continued you know, toxic chemicals to produce our food, which I would argue we really don't need to be doing anymore. So thanks so much for the conversation. Uh, Jadine or Marla, either of you like to jump in there on uh, the impacts of agriculture? Uh, is that something that the Sierra Club is is working on, Jadine? Yeah, it's definitely something that we're concerned about. Um, I wouldn't claim to be an expert in any sense, but um, yeah, the way that we are and, and have been farming for years is has been detrimental. Um, and one of the other projects that I work on is how are we promoting, you know, more sustainable practices that um, can tie different ecosystems together and make sure that that plants and humans and animals and, and all of us are working together, um, as opposed to including these like external inputs um, in those systems. And so, um, 
I don't have a lot of great answers as to, you know, like what are the next big steps and all that. Um, but I do think that uplifting that issue and like opportunities like these um, is really, really important because our food systems and how we grow our food is really, really, um, really important. It's like the, the basis of, of life and everything for us. So something that we really need to be paying attention to. Um, and yeah, I hope to see a lot more action in that area. And a huge issue in that discussion you mentioned, Marla, in terms of uh, keeping 30% of space available for other creatures, uh, agriculture takes up a lot of the space that we use, right? Um, so in addition to the way we do agriculture, just how much land we use for agriculture and what that looks like, whether those are annual crops, perennial crops, et cetera, has a huge impact on other forms of life. What would you like to add, Marla? Yeah, so in, in the assessment on the sustainable you sustainable use of wild species, agriculture um, is really highlighted as one of the major drivers of unsustainable uses and of unsustainable relationships with wild species. And uh, one of the things that that was really clear from our examination of, we looked at over 6,000 scientific papers, as well as engaging in a really extensive process of dialogue with indigenous peoples and local communities from all over the world. And one of the things that, that we identified is we really cannot afford to deal with agriculture in one silo and energy in another silo and biodiversity in another silo where we make policies in one place that are completely um, independent of and don't take into account their effects on other areas. And so I think for folks like the caller, you know, John, who's clearly active on the ground uh, at the high level policy air, uh, level as well, we have really got to start looking at how does our agriculture policy affect biodiversity? How does our energy policy affect biodiversity? And if our energy policy or our agriculture policy is going to have negative effects on biodiversity, then we need different policy. That's Dr. Marla Emery here on A Public Affair today. We're talking about biodiversity and the COP15 Biodiversity Conference happening now in Montreal. We have another caller on the line. We have our former Monday host, my predecessor, Patty Peltecos, on the line. Welcome back to A Public Affair, Patty. Hi, Douglas. Thank you so much. Um, and welcome to you, too. Thank you. Uh, so, so this is piggybacking a bit off of John's question and looking at agriculture, um, I know for me, when I think of biodiversity, I do tend to think of, of wildlife and wild creatures, but I'm wondering if in the, the COP15, there is a look at diversity among livestock animals and helping to preserve the heritage breeds that are not maybe going extinct, but are in danger of becoming extinct themselves and if if that is also a part of this conversation and thank you for the show i'll take the answer off the air bye-bye thank you patty um marla would you like to speak to that yeah um, i'm so glad 
that uh, Patty surfaced that question. It absolutely is a topic of discussion at COP15. Um, and not only heritage breeds for livestock, but heritage breeds for, for plant crops that are important food. So for example, for corn uh, in, in particular. Um, and, and this is especially important as we're facing climate change because the limited number of breeds that make up large-scale food production are um, going to be very vulnerable to the effects of climate change. And we are going to need the possibility for genetic diversity that is going to cope better with what's coming at us in terms of climate change. And those are in wild species and in heritage breeds but also in the practices of producing those heritage breeds. If we have a heritage breed of pig, for example, and we put it into an industrial production model rather than a forest grazing model, we're probably going to not get the kind of result that we're looking for. So I think that what I would would add here is it is not only the breeds, it is not only the genetic material, but the ways that we interact with them. I would even for, uh, formulate this as the kinds of relationships that we have with those heritage breeds and with what are sometimes referred to as land races. Those are the wild species that are the predecessors of uh, current agricultural species. Great question, great uh, topic that maybe also doesn't get brought up too often in this context, but really important to think about and another one that uh, connects a lot of the issues as you as you mentioned just now, Marla. Thank you. You're listening to A Public Affair here on WRT 89.9 FM Madison. We still have time this hour to hear from you. Please give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. We're talking about the biodiversity crisis and the talks going on at COP15 in Montreal right now. And I'm going to turn back to those talks uh, to both of our guests to talk a little bit about uh, the possibility for progress within the context of United Nations talks. A recent UN report showed that not a single target from the COP 2010 agreement has been met related to biodiversity, and many scientists are skeptical that a meaningful agreement can be reached this time around. Uh, I'll turn it to both of you here. What hope do you have that things will be different this time? And what do you think the uh, prospects are for creating an ambitious framework this time around? So it's really two questions. One, the framework. Can we create a, a framework that will really get us where we need to be in terms of saving more forms of life on planet Earth? And then uh, will we have the follow through with the framework? Um, Jadine, we'll turn to you first. Big questions. <laughs> um, I wouldn't claim to be an expert on, you know, the history of COP and, and international policy and all that. I would hope so. Um, I'll be really curious what Marla has to share on on possibilities and, and what probabilities are looking like. But I'd say that um, regardless, I think that um, with increased 
public pressure, such as what we've been talking about, folks coming out um, to organize and rally in Montreal will be pushing decision makers at the top level um, to follow through on these goals. I think that it's imperative that we do um, and they need to be listening to frontline communities instead of um, the other way around. So um, I think that kind of regardless of the direction things go formally, um, there'll be continued public pressure and, and demands and, and that will shift things over time. Um, so yeah, I'm very hopeful um, that there will be a lot of positive changes and um, new implementations coming out of this and know that um, all along the way, there'll be people who are supporting and pushing for even stronger um, goals and regulations down in the future um, to make sure that we're providing the safety to biodiversity um, and communities on the front lines um, in general. So I've got a lot of hope because I, I know that this is a great opportunity for people to be making connections, both at the high, you know, international levels of, of uh, countries coming together, um, but also for people who are just doing grassroots organizing and um, gathering the masses to um, put on pressure and, and um, lend support um, looking upwards. So, yeah, I'm very hopeful. So you see the conference, regardless of the formal outcomes, it's sort of a, a spark for the long, slow struggle, it sounds like. Yeah. Thank you, Jadine. Marla, how about you? What are the prospects? Well, I just want to echo what Jadine has, has just said. I think I, I observe the same thing uh, and I, I find hope uh, in exactly that. So, but in terms of the, the high level policy discussions between governments, I think that I, I see room, I see space for hope. I, I, I'm a hopeful person. And I and I observed it and came away feeling hopeful, um, partly because there are new things in the conversation now that were not really so strongly in the conversation at the at the previous COP. Um, they are, in particular, um, a respect for and an insistence on the rights of indigenous peoples and local communities, the folks who are on the ground every day, living with the impacts of the lack of sustainability and engaging in practices that, uh, that provide us with really good models for how to live sustain sustainably with nature. And you can't have a conversation at COP now unless it includes that. And you also can't have a conversation at COP now without a sort of general understanding that whatever we choose to do in terms of policy, it must be just, it must be equitable. We cannot do this as a, we're gonna choose who's gonna win and who's going to lose. It, we have to come up with solutions that are good for all of humanity and all of nature. And that's really, really, encouraging. That's massive progress because those were not the conversations that were happening before. Um, and another area of, of hope for me is that when I arrived in Montreal last Monday, there was text that was all full of brackets, which were places where the countries were we're disagreeing about exactly how something should be said. You know, lots of really smart, committed people have been working for months and years to come up with this text, and it was just full of disagreements. Um, and one by one, 
over the course of the last week, the brackets have been coming out of the paragraphs and the countries have been organizing, have been agreeing, okay, we can agree to this. And that that's really, it's super messy. It's like, it's, you kind of don't want to see how the sausage is made. Um, and it is definitely a sausage making process, but um, paragraph by paragraph, there was some pretty darn good sausage coming out of this. Um, and we won't like everything that comes out of it, but there really is substantive progress being made. And then as Jadine said, um, all these non-governmental organizations, all these civil society organizations are, are there insisting. They're there with their expertise, what they know about frontline communities, and they're insisting. And folks like myself who are scientists are there saying, let us give you the best information possible so that along with the knowledge and the expertise of the frontline communities, the indigenous peoples and local communities, we can, we can bring in the best available science so that when we commit to doing something, then we can find the best way of the, that follow through that you mentioned. Because obviously at the end of the day, that's what really is going to determine whether we successfully meet the biodiversity crisis or not is what's our follow through like. And so I, I'm just, I'm really, con I'm really encouraged by, if you're, you know, you're in a room full of, or a, a building rather full of 1800 people who really want this to happen and are really committed. And um, I think that we have a good shot at it. There's one party, of course, that's significant, that's not there, who we haven't mentioned yet. Um, it's been really interesting to hear you talking about those brackets falling away, and I'm, I'm imagining what the one party who's not at the table might be saying, and that's that's a, an official uh, representative from the United States, um, because the United States, although a leading contributor to biodiversity loss, is not an official party to this conference, to the COP15 delegation because of Republican opposition to ratifying the Convention on Biological Diversity, which got this whole process rolling. So this has been ratified by every nation on Earth except the United States and the Vatican, the Holy See. Um, any thoughts, Marla, on what the limits of the COP process are if the U.S. continues to not be involved or what the, the follow-through will be if the U.S. can't be involved or isn't officially involved in the Convention? Well, you ask uh, both a difficult question, Doug, and a slightly delicate question uh, as someone who spent 31 years working as a scientist for the United States Forest Service. But um, it, it's awkward, to say the least. Um, and um, certainly is a is a limitation. However, um, for example, this key point of 30 by 30, the US government has committed itself to 30 by 30. So 
within the political realities of the uh, just the inability to come to an agreement that would allow the United States to become a signatory to, to the Convention on Biodiversity, the U.S. is nevertheless uh, making commitments that are extremely important within the Convention on, on Biodiversity. Um, it falls short of being a full participant in the process, but that doesn't mean that the U.S. isn't taking action on some key uh, key features of the convention. The Biden administration came out early on in favor of that thirty by thirty idea, right? If I I'm that's correct. correct, yeah. So um, there are there are key initiatives that the U.S. can stand for. You're saying that align with or represent priorities of what's happening in the COP process. And as long as that keeps happening, you see uh, prospects are good for at least everybody moving in the same direction. That's that's correct. And I can say from personal experience, for example, that there are many U.S. scientists present at, at the COP, and um, those same scientists are, uh, in many cases, uh, quite involved in uh, the formulation of U.S. policy. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's it's not a complete and total disengagement, even while it is a, you know, not a, the U.S. is not a formal signatory and participant. Yeah, thank you for that perspective, Marla. Um, we only have a few minutes left, and I would love to focus on ongoing action in that time that we have and building on this COP process. We'll return to where we started with you, Jadine, um, and Marla mentioned in particular the importance of indigenous nations uh, in Line 5 organizing, or anti-Line 5 organizing, I should say. Um, tell us more about their role and um, what... Uh, you all will be working on in terms of continuing to organize uh, here in the upper Midwest uh, against pipelines uh, that affect biodiversity, the climate crisis. What's going to be happening, Jadine? Yeah, it's a good question. I'm so glad that we're um, getting into, in a couple of minutes, um, Indigenous treaty rights. Um, I was really excited when Marla had uh, brought that up a, a couple of minutes ago. Um it's a really major issue within Line 5, anti-Line 5, as you said, work, um, and is a major component that we need a lot of folks to be paying attention to moving forward. So we are just talking uh, about the Biden administration as an example. We really need them um, to be standing up for treaty rights. Um, the tribes who um, have reserved rights um, on the land that Line 5 runs through um, are uh, a big part of ongoing Line 5 work and organizing. And um, this pipeline um, runs through ceded territory in, uh, for 1842 and 1836 treaties. Um, the tribes have reserved rights to hunt and fish and gather on those lands. Um, and Enbridge, the, the pipeline company, and their pipeline are really threatening those rights, which includes um, threats to biodiversity, for example, wild rice um, on the shores of Lake Superior, so many different wildlife species and, and such. Um, and so it's really, really crucial that moving forward, we're uplifting those major concerns and calling on big decision makers um, like the Biden administration to be standing with us and standing with uh, tribal nations in support of their sovereignty and their ability to um, hunt and gather and 
um, enact the rights that they rightfully own and retain. Um, so I think a big part of the work going forward is going to be continuing to uplift those issues and and putting pressure on decision makers to be um, fighting for those rights as well. So a lot to do. I'm excited to see how that all plays out um, and how we can bring even more folks into this work because it's going to take a lot of us to um, really make some change and protect biodiversity, protect uh, tribal treaty rights, um, protect our communities and our climate and so much more. Everything, it's all it's all wrapped in together. It is all wrapped in together. Marla, um, in 30 seconds or so, what can we do what can we, uh, you've talked a lot about hope and how you're hopeful. What can we do to keep that hope alive? I would say, let's think about ourselves as citizens of nature, not as separate from nature. And as citizens, we have responsibilities. We need to be sure that what we do, we engage in reciprocal relationships. We give back as well as taking out. And um, that we think in terms of what our responsibilities as well as our rights are when we are engaging with nature and conducting our day-to-day lives. That's Dr. Marla Emery. Scientific Advisor at the Norwegian Institute for Nature Research and Co-Chair of the Scientific Assessment of Sustainable Use of Wild Species for IBPIS, which is an intergovernmental uh, panel of scientists working on the biodiversity crisis. Thank you so much for joining us today, Marla. My pleasure, Doug. Thank you for having me. And we've also been talking with Jadine Sonoda, who is a campaign coordinator for the Sierra Club of Wisconsin. Thanks again for being with us, Jadine. Yeah, thank you so much. It was great to be here. And thank you, listeners, for joining us here on A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM Madison. I'm your host, Douglas Haynes. I'd like to thank today's engineer, Andrew, producer Jade, and news director, Shali. And thanks again, listeners, for joining us and those of you who called in here on A Public Affair. Stay tuned for Madison Book Beat.